And we're studying this very exciting chapter in chapter 27 of Acts, the account of Paul and those with him being uh, shipwrecked. <coughs> God at work in the storm. It's been fascinating, hasn't it, to be reminded of the, the, the very solemn uh, events leading up to the commencement of hostilities in the First World War. Uh, some of the coverage on the, the television has been, been very uh, helpful, very interesting. Uh, one of the things which really impressed itself on me was the account, uh, you know, the, the written accounts of some of the people who went on those initial uh, journeys to the conflict in France and Belgium and how they were transported in, in very makeshift uh, sea transport, leaving Folkestone very often to go to France and Belgium, sometimes in ships which had once been used for the transport of cattle. Uh, and what an indignity that was when you think about it. These men, the, the, the flower of the nation being sent uh, to this conflict, which they all went uh, to believing it would be a short and glorious victory. Uh, and yet there they were being transported, huddled up together in, in cattle uh, ships. And as I was thinking of that, well, a similar situation here, isn't it, uh, to the Apostle Paul's circumstances as we come to the end of the book of Acts. This great man, uh, the greatest Christian ever, the greatest missionary, greatest theologian, the greatest church planter. And what wretched circumstances outwardly uh, mark the latter parts of Acts. Uh, he's been for two years uh, in jail in Caesarea, facing uh, one set after another of, of bogus charges against him, having to go through the, the process of defending himself against his accusers, often with, with rather corrupt governors uh, presiding. And now uh, he is being sent uh, to Rome, having appealed to the emperor for a fair hearing, uh, he goes to Rome. And latterly it's in a grain ship. Uh, he's cooped up with 275 others in the hold of a boat, many of them slaves, uh, going to Rome, uh, facing their end uh, and in the, the process providing entertainment for the crowds at the Colosseum and also some of his companions who had elected to go with him uh, in the hold of a grain ship. Hardly business class travel. Hardly first class treatment for the great apostle to the Gentiles. And one of the worst experiences that we can have, isn't it, to be caught up in a, a storm, to be at sea in the midst of a storm. And this was a hurricane force storm that struck this boat. Uh, and if you are prone to seasickness, then you will know that it's not a nice experience to be in this. Uh, it's not a nice experience to be in it for uh, an hour or two. Uh, when it goes on day after day after day, no wonder they despaired of life. And if it's difficult to sustain yourself in these circumstances, it's also very difficult uh, if you're one of the few that's not seasick, uh, one of the few who's coping, to be sympathetic to others uh, without them uh, resenting the fact that you're not quite as miserable as 
they are. Paul evidently had good sea legs because he was able uh, to conduct himself in a, in a very uh, commanding way, to take control of the situation uh, in a real sense. And we're going to be tracking Paul's bearing, his conduct, as someone who, because he was confident of the fact that he was in the, the care of a sovereign God, is able in this dreadful circumstance to bear a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, which made its impact upon those around him. Uh, This is a literal storm that we're considering tonight, Uh, but there are many storms that we have which are comparable in the way they impact on us. Uh, We speak of life storms in a metaphorical sense. Uh, And when we do that, we're thinking of experiences such as unemployment or bereavement or sickness or sorrow of different kinds. And none of us is immune from these things. They come and they they hit us. Uh, Sometimes they come upon us suddenly. And the man or woman of God who is walking with God in the storm is able to witness to the non-believing world around in a way that is powerful, in a way that commends Jesus perhaps more strongly than at other times when things are going well for us. We're going to look at the chapter. We're going to look, first of all, at the cause of storms, thinking widely. We're going to think about the comfort that the Lord gives to us in the midst of storms. And we're going to think thirdly about the challenge that the believer can be to other people if we are walking in the knowledge of the sovereign keeping of God when we're in these situations. So we're going to look first of all then at the cause of storms in our lives. You know, the presence of, of evil in the world is one of the, one of the things, one of the, the features that the unbelievers often use uh, to say, to, to give us a reason why they don't believe in God. You see, why, why is there suffering in the world? If God is good and powerful, why is it that we encounter uh, things which result in the loss of life or in unhappiness of of any kind. But as believers, we believe that not only is it the good things in life, the things which uh, give us joy and peace and contentment, not only are these things uh, sent by God, but the things which cause us distress and pain, they are equally part of the providential governing of God. So God is ultimately the cause. He is the first cause behind all of these things. And there are different immediate reasons why we encounter these difficult situations, these storms, these upsets. One of the reasons that we could come uh, into the, the teeth of the storm is because of our own sinfulness. God may send things across our bow to bring us to our senses, to gain our attention so that God can speak into our lives. Now, if we think of another 
person who was in a literal storm in the Bible, uh, the person who comes to mind, I'm sure, is Jonah. Uh, we have this much shorter account of Jonah in a storm. And there's a real sense in which Jonah can be said to be the cause of his storm. Uh, God sent that storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. Jonah was saying no to God, as we were putting it to the children this morning. Our sin is saying no to God. Jonah was saying no to God. God said, uh, go to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah said, I'll go to Tarshish. The opposite direction. And God sent a storm into Jonah's life, which of course had a bad fallout for those who were with him also. And you could say that it was a result of Jonah's sin. And there are other things that come uh, into our lives uh, which are the result of sin. Sometimes there's an obvious connection. Sometimes uh, things in our lifestyle bring with them bad consequences. Uh, if you are addicted to work, if you're a workaholic, then that's going to bring uh, all kinds of work-related illness, ulcers, uh, and so on, uh, inability to sleep, all the rest of it. Uh, addiction to alcohol or tobacco, they have bad consequences. But sometimes there's not an organic connection with things that go wrong in our lives, but uh, God is chastising us. And it's always a good thing to do when there are hardships in our lives to first ask the, the obvious question, is God dis disciplining me uh, through this? Is there something in my life that I need to repent of? Is this indeed God's loudspeaker into my situation, telling me about something which is not right? It could be that that's why we're in the storm. But often, there's another reason altogether. God could uh, have sent a storm uh, into our situation, and we've been walking in most observable respects, blamelessly before God, but God wants uh, this person uh, to be a pointer to his goodness. You remember the, the story of the, the man who was uh, born blind and was taken to Jesus, and the people uh, assume that it has to be the man's sin which has resulted in his blindness. And so the question they ask, who sinned? Uh, was it the man or was it his parents? There's no other, no other possibility envisaged in the situation. It had to be because of sin, the man or his parents. Jesus said, neither. That's not the reason. You look in the wrong direction. But that the glory of God might be revealed. In and that often is, is why God sends uh, these difficult situations, that in the midst of them, his glory might be revealed. Now, that's the kind of situation that we have here in this, this storm that came upon the boat in which Paul was sailing. But the thing that <clears throat> is most fundamental, the thing that we have to keep uh, in our minds at all times, is that God is in control. He is in control. When things happen to us that, that uh, we don't like, it's not because God has abandoned us. It's not because things have suddenly slipped outside the sphere of his authority. It's not because chance and chaos has taken over. God remains sovereign. And you see the sovereign hand of God from the beginning of, of the, the account in chapter 27. You see it even in the provision of 
a man called Julius, the centurion who is put in charge of Paul. And he seems to be a very fair-minded man, a practical man. He listens to common sense and who cares for Paul. They go aboard the ship uh, and the ship uh, hugs the coastline along the eastern Mediterranean uh, towards southern Turkey. And the first act of kindness from Julius is when the boat uh, goes into Sidon, a, a port in Phoenicia on the eastern Mediterranean, and he allows Paul to disembark so that his friends might meet his needs. That was a kind act. And we can be assured of the fact that not only would Paul's needs have been met, but Paul would be ministering to the Christians who were living there in Sidon. This was an opportunity for him to build up the church in Sidon. They sail, uh, going on from there, they sail past Cyprus. They landed at Myra in Lycia. And at this point, they change ship. And they board a ship that's carrying grain. Verse 38 tells us that the ship uh, was carrying grain from Alexandria. Egypt at that time was the breadbasket for the Roman Empire. It's taking probably wheat up to uh, Italy. The weather uh, is getting worse. They're making slow progress. Now they're on the leeward side of the, the Isle of Crete. Uh, they hug the coast until they can get into the port called Fair Havens. Now Paul has been used to travelling on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, with his missionary journeys, he's been crisscrossing the Mediterranean. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11:25 that uh, he was shipwrecked three times. Three times before this, he's been cast adrift on the open sea for a night and a day. He knows how dangerous the Mediterranean can be. Time is marching on. We're told it was past the fast. Fast was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is AD 59. Calculations tell us that that would have put the 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 time early October. So we're getting into autumn. Uh, we're getting into that time of year when storms can be expected, when uh, large boats simply didn't sail. So Paul is concerned uh, that they could be making a big mistake by putting out to sea again. He wants them to remain in this harbour called Fairhavens until the winter's over. And he speaks his mind. But he's overruled by the pilot and the centurion and the owner of the boat. And they reckon that the, the, the place where they are isn't suitable for overwintering. They want to go 40 miles further up the island and get to a port called Phoenix and, went, and winter there. Now the weather at this point seems to be fairly mild. We're told in verse 10 that there's a, a gentle southerly wind blowing uh, when they do set out. So they're... Uh, taken in by the, these circumstances, the weather, however, changes very quickly. And there is this notorious wind called the Northeaster, which uh, picks up. It's a hurricane force wind. And the boat begins to be buffeted so badly that the incredible pressure on the, the planks of the boat make them fear that it's going to break up. And so strong cables are passed underneath the, 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 um, the boat itself to bind it together. Uh, 
The next day, they lower anchors to prevent the ship from being run aground. And the day after that, they begin to throw the cargo of the boat uh, over sea. It's a dreadful time. Three days and three nights when the, the lights, the sun and the stars at night are hidden from view by the, 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 the water and the, the darkness. And they begin to give up all hope of being saved. Now we see here that sometimes we, we end up in trouble like this because of the bad decisions that other people make. Uh, they should really, as, as Paul points out, they should have listened to him. But they didn't. Uh, the majority decision was to sail on and they sailed into the northeaster. Sometimes that's what happens with us. We, we suffer in life because of the, the bad decisions that we have made but other people have made. You can think of a whole host of, of circumstances, can't you? Uh, you're in a car accident. Someone comes into you because they decided before they got into the car to have a drink or two or three. And suddenly, lives are thrown into turmoil. A financial advisor gives bad advice and, and uh, pressurizes someone into a, a silly investment. And they're thrown into, the family is thrown into financial turmoil. Parents decide to send their child to a school away from his or her friends. He's got a miserable childhood. Somebody else's bad decision. The direct cause of our hardships can be the bad decisions that other people have made, but it remains the case that underlying all of these things is the sovereign will of God. And the fact that humans have made a decision and it's resulted in this doesn't mean that God doesn't have a deeper, albeit more mysterious, plan and purpose. And even bad or wicked decisions can be made by human agents and still be within the divine ordering of God. And this is hugely practical, friends. Hugely practical. You can go through life, and whenever you, have, uh, whenever you suffer because of somebody else's bad decision, you can become resentful and angry against that person. Someone's made a stupid decision that's messed up your life. And you're filled with anger and frustration. Or you can have that wider picture which sees that the sovereign Lord is in control of all things. And that the sovereign Lord who is in control of all things is your loving heavenly father. Who has purposes of good and blessing for you. Even in the storm. And believe me that makes all of the difference. All of the difference. When we step back from the situations that seem to be all-encompassing, these situations where we find ourselves unable sometimes to see anything but the wrong that's going on around us, and we realize that God is sovereign, and we patiently wait on God to show the good which he ultimately does have for us, then we are enabled by his grace to bear up under 
our circumstances. Certainly people uh, make bad decisions. People mess up. We live in a fallen world. But evil does not have the upper hand. Random chaos doesn't have the better of us. God is in control. And therefore, Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God can relax and serve him. What a practical, blessed doctrine this is. But notice also that belief in the, practic- in the sovereignty of God doesn't prevent us from being practically involved to better our situation. Paul, who most certainly believed that God was in control of his circumstances, didn't shrink from standing up and telling the, the crew what they ought to have done. He gave practical advice to the folks. They should have stayed there. They went against his advice, but Paul got involved in the situation. And that's important as well. Belief that God is sovereign, that God is ordering your circumstances, doesn't mean that any of us as Christians should uh, sit back and sing, que sera, sera, and let things just go on without being involved. But rather, on the other hand, belief in the sovereignty of God means that we are involved in life around us with confidence and assurance that God is at work in it and uses human agents such as ourselves. And so we see uh, in Paul's uh, involvement here that belief in God being in control of everything uh, means that we can have a calm and confident activism in our situation. The cause of the storm, God it was who caused the storm, despite the fact that their being in it was the result of bad human decision-making. Secondly, look at the the comfort that God brought to Paul in the storm. It's interesting reflecting on the, the, other, the other storm story that I mentioned, the story of Jonah uh, in the storm. Uh, you could say that Jonah ha- had comfort of a kind when he was in the storm. You remember how Jonah is asleep in the boat. Uh, he is in the, the, the hold of the boat. The sailors, the pagan sailors, are mad with Jonah because they are frantically praying to their gods and they believe that Jonah should be praying to his God also, but he's asleep, he's in a deep sleep. I believe it's the sleep of a deadened conscience. Uh, Jonah probably had convinced himself that, that uh, things were okay. After all, hadn't God provided him with this boat, which happened to be going in the very direction he wanted to travel in? And so uh, he's there, and he's been able to, to rationalize his situation. And we've got a tremendous capacity for doing that. You know? It's amazing how people uh, who are familiar with the Bible and its teachings and know exactly what the Bible says in a host of issues, yet go the other way and then try to rationalize to themselves that it's okay with God in any case. Jonah, I think, had been doing that And now he's sleeping the sleep of a man with a dead conscience. And God has to raise him up from that that drowsy slumber uh, through the the angry shoutings of pagan soldiers, pagan seamen. How different, though, 
for a man like Paul. How different the comfort that Paul has. Paul, who is walking with God, who is going God's way, also has comfort in the storm, but it's of a very different kind. He first of all finds comfort from the church. The church was there in that boat, wasn't it? Because the church isn't a building, it's not bricks and mortars, it's the people of God. And there were believers on the boat. We've got Luke and Aristarchus, at least, believers with Paul on the boat. Uh, now, we, we know that Luke is here because we've got one of these sections where, in the narrative, uh, the, the pronoun we is used. It's quite interesting, actually, when you go through Acts uh, to be alerted to the, 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 the points where, where Luke starts to, to refer to, to we or to us. He was there. And the, the account becomes very detailed. Luke was there. Aristarchus was also there. Aristarchus was from Thessalonica, presumably a convert of Paul's missions or subsequent mission from uh, others there. And Aristarchus is one of these people uh, who has a very good track record of being with Paul in the darkest of times. Acts 19.29, uh, he's there in Ephesus, uh, dragged into the theatre during the riot. He accompanied Paul uh, on his journeys through that region, Acts 20, verse 4. Uh, writing from Rome, Paul can speak of Aristarchus as a fellow prisoner, Colossians 4, verse 10. Some of the, the scholars think that the only way that Luke and Aristarchus could have got on board would have been for them to uh, go on board as slaves of Paul. Or servants of Paul. It's a marvellous thought, isn't it? These two men who had freedom to do what they wanted voluntarily became slaves of Paul and shared his privations, uh, went into, onto this hazardous journey in order to encourage and support him. That's wonderful. It's a picture of the reality of Christian fellowship. How do we know when uh, you've got someone who is, is a real brother or sister in Christ? It's not that they're willing to, to share a chat with you over a cup of tea on a Sunday morning, although that's good. It's that they're willing to go to jail with you. <laughs> they're willing to go on board a grain carrier at one of the most hazardous times for sailing in the Mediterranean. They'll share your life with you. And on our journey together, that's what fellowship is all about. It's sharing one another's lives, even when it's hard, difficult to do so. God's comfort also came through uh, his very real presence. An angel appeared to Paul in the storm and assured Paul of the protection of God. Now, I've never seen an angel, and I, I'm sure that the appearance of angels uh, to people who occurs is, is uh, still relatively uncommon. But God comes to us, does he not, through his Holy Spirit, uh, through the Word, when we are in the thick of it, and assures us of his presence in ways that are deeply moving at times. 
ways which sometimes will result in tears of joy rolling down our cheeks because we are convinced of the reality of the presence of God, of the, the sureness of his promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. At times when we have needed it most, has God not come in a very real way, not only to our intellect, but to our emotion as well, and has assured us of his presence? Paul had one of these occasions. He had a very real word from God that no one was going to be lost in this journey. A very clear message from God given to him. And it was that consciousness that God had spoken into his situation that gave him such remarkable poise in his dealings with those on board. And it's that to which we turn finally as we think of the, the challenge there was in Paul's manner, in his bearing, as he witnessed for Christ in the middle of this terrifying situation. Isn't it true that people take most notice of Christians when they're going through difficult times? Yeah? That's when the reality of our faith is seen. Not in the sunshine, but in the storm. People want to know if following Jesus makes a difference or if it's something like being a member of the National Trust. You know, it's nice to have, but it's not an essential to life. Uh, it's something to do on sunny days when you've got nothing else to do. Is it just like that? Or is it something deeply fundamental? Something which makes a difference to every area of our lives and which carries us through when everything else is falling apart. People are watching, watching believers. And our witness is most effective when things are going terribly badly and when we're in distressing circumstances. Because Paul was walking close to his Lord, his example in this time of huge calamity had an amazing impression upon 275 people who were bound up with him. What do we learn then from what Paul did of how we can be a witness when we're in a storm? Well, one of the most obvious things is that Paul was bound up with this seething mass of humanity in the boat. There wasn't much way he could escape them. Well, he could have escaped them. He could have withdrawn into himself. He could have, he could have stayed below decks when things were terrible, when the waves were pounding, he could have said to himself, at least I'm saved. I'm going to be raised from the dead on the resurrection day. I've got a glorious life ahead. I have a hope of eternal life. And Lord, I just want to be on my own in these last moments. This boat is full of rough sailors and slaves going to their execution. Lord, I'll spend my time with you alone, down below. Paul didn't do that. He got involved with the people on board. He involved himself in the decision-making process of, of, uh, of the, 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 the captain and his crew. And he bore 
a very clear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we often say that we're all in the same boat with the people around us. But it's very easy for us to isolate ourselves in different ways. And if we're to be a witness, we have to be involved in the joys and sorrows of the people around us. To be salt in our community, we need to be distinctive, but we also need to be rubbed into the meat, don't we? We need to be engaged in uh, our neighbourhood. We need to have people who are not Christians who we count as real friends because that's how the gospel travels. And Paul was involved in the people around him. Secondly, uh, Paul's example shows us the importance about being open about our faith. Paul shared with these pagan uh, sailors the fact that the angel of the Lord had given him a message of assurance. Uh, Paul could simply have, have voiced his, his, his positive view about the outcome. Uh, he doesn't do that. He says it's a word from God that he has. An angel of the Lord had appeared. Uh, he says of himself, it was the God whose I am and whom I serve. Is that a, an example? Isn't it a challenge to us? Don't let people think that you're simply uh, someone with a, a sunny outlook or a positive way of thinking when you're in a, a difficulty. Acknowledge the Lord. Whose we are and whom we serve. Let them know uh, who it is that brings you assurance when things are hard. Thirdly, do as much good to non-Christian people as you can. Paul ministered very practically to the needs of the people on that boat. First of all, he prevents the ship being abandoned by the sailors, pointing out uh, their escape to the centurion and ensuring that the company of this boat didn't, didn't part so that those that were left uh, were very vulnerable. And then later on, uh, he recognises the, the real need of the people on board. They've gone 14 days uh, under great stress uh, they haven't been able to eat and he encourages them to eat and sets them an example by eating himself. People's hearts are touched by God when Christians do them good, do them practical good. When we show forth the love of God through practical good deeds. So, so important that people know that we care for them, that we're sympathetic, that where possible we can care for them practically. Absolutely vital. Paul showed he cared. Fourthly, we should be quite open before others in our worship of God. Paul stands up there uh, in front of the others. He's showing them example. He's going to take bread himself, but he gives thanks before the people. These are pagans, they don't share his beliefs. But Paul wants to acknowledge God before them. We too should be open about our worship of God, shouldn't we? And that can happen in all kinds of different ways. Never be, never be ashamed to say grace in a restaurant when you're with other Christians. Just say it, let the world know that you're acknowledging God. When folks ask you, what did you do at the weekend? You can say all kinds of things. You can also say, I was worshipping with other Christians. I was in church, you know. 
just to be open before others in the most natural way. Paul is natural about his worship here. We can bear testimony simply by being natural about our worship of God. Sing hymns in the storm. And eventually, the boat's wrecked and they need to swim ashore or cling to bits and fragments of the boat. But notice, not one is lost. Everyone is saved according to the word of God. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, who has such a wonderful way of putting things so often, he puts it again so quaintly. I want to quote him. He says, Though there be great difficulty in the way of the promised salvation, yet it shall without fail be accomplished, and even the wreck of the ship may furnish out means for the saving of lives. And when all seems gone, all proves to be safe, though it be on boards and broken pieces of the ship. And that's how it was. God saved them on uh, boards and broken pieces of the ship. What eternal impact did Paul's testimony uh, result in? I don't know. I'm quite sure that Paul continued to witness to those uh, hundreds of people uh, in their time there uh, on uh, the island. In late 1735, uh, a ship was sailing from uh, England to the New World, to the United States. And on board was a young Anglican minister by the name of John Wesley. Wesley was going over to uh, be a pastor to British colonists in Savannah, Georgia. And on the, the journey, a huge storm uh, brewed up and began to, to shake the, the ship. Uh, Wesley was chaplain of the ship and he was terrified by the experience. He feared for his life and for the rest of those on board. There was one thing that deeply impressed Wesley during this time. There were a group of Moravians uh, who were going over to be missionaries to the Indians in America. And Wesley was deeply impressed by their calmness and their fortitude. They sang hymns in the storm. And when they, they arrived safely, Wesley asked uh, the Moravian leader about their serenity. Where did they find uh, such peace? And the Moravian replied with a question. Asked Wesley himself, did he have faith in Christ? Wesley said, uh, yes, of course I do. But later on, uh, he wrote, I fear they were vain words. See, Wesley had been challenged uh, to examine uh, his foundations. Uh, it was a, a sad uh, episode in his life. His, his ministry uh, in Savannah was a, a failure. Uh, personally, he struggled. Uh, he came back and he spoke again to another Moravian, Peter Bowler, and he concluded that he wasn't a Christian. He lacked saving faith. And then on May the 24th, 1738, uh, in Aldersgate Street in London, he had uh, that experience of his heart being strangely warmed when he was born again of the Spirit of God. He became a true believer. But it had been the example of true believers who sang in the storm that convicted Wesley. And that is always uh, true 
of Christians who are walking close to God when things are going badly. May God give us grace whenever we do uh, walk or pass through the storm. May he give us grace to be bold, consistent witnesses for who knows what impact we have on those who travel with us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of this great apostle uh, who never counted himself as being above the the hazardous conditions, the deprivation he was called upon uh, to endure for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for the, the impact of his life. We pray, Lord, that we ourselves would meet with our hardships, our disappointments, our setbacks, with calm and with joy and with peace, and that others might see that our peace and our joy and our calm comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.